Now, if the court doesn't accept that definition of that difference, then it's a very easy okay. thing to write. Did you have left on rebuttal? How much time was left on rebuttal? Good afternoon. Welcome to the Court of Appeals. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. When I read what significance procedural posture? The court doesn't belong to the judges. It doesn't belong to the lawyers. It doesn't belong to the courthouse crowd. It belongs to the people of this state. Welcome to another edition of Georgia Appellate Review. My name is Ryan Locke, and today's guest is Andy Clark. For the last four years, Andy Clark has run his own law firm here in Atlanta, where he focuses his practice on appeals and other post-judgment relief. Uh, before that, he was an associate at Greenberg Trowick. He was a Forrester Fellow at Tulane Law School, teaching legal research and writing, and a 2001 graduate of the University of Chicago Law School. Andy, welcome. Hi, Ryan. Thank you for having me. So, Andy, tell me what um, what led you to practicing appeals. Well, uh, writing has always been the thing about being a lawyer that appeals to me the most. That's why I went to law school in the first place, is that I thought I could do writing for a living. Um, I, you know, always took a lot of pride in my writing as a younger lawyer. When I got to Greenberg Traurig, um, I was doing securities litigation. And a lot of securities litigation involves arbitration. And we developed a very niche practice there of fighting or trying to confirm arbitration awards in court. So basically, when uh, there was an arbitration award that somebody really wanted to keep fighting, we would go to court uh, or go to appeals courts all over the country fighting or defending arbitration awards. And that's, that's how I started doing a lot of appellate work was those securities arbitration cases. And after five years of doing that at Greenberg Trar, I got decided to try it solo. And that's what I've been doing. Did you always want to be a lawyer? No. Um, growing up, I really didn't know what I wanted to be. Um, at, when I started college, I was on the engineering track. I, I wanted to be a teacher for a while. And, you know, I actually did teach law for a few years. Um, so it's really the writing that got me into law. The idea that I could write for a living was what made me decide to be a lawyer. And, and the reason I ask is, it seems like there are a lot of appellate practitioners who were interested in, in like other professional writing careers, and then kind of ended up with this, you know, like they were English teachers before, and then they came to this, or they were journalists before, and then they went to law school or something like that. Right. I mean, I think uh, there's nothing you can do in the law that involves more writing than this, other than maybe being uh, a law professor or, you know, writing for a legal newspaper or something like that. This is about the most writing you can do. Now, you do a lot of civil appeals. Yes, mostly civil, but I, I do handle a variety of stuff. Um, I've had some family law cases tax cases, uh, some criminal cases as well. So a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. I, I think you're the first guest we've had who has significant criminal, I mean, significant civil experience. Okay. Which is, which is interesting and exciting. Tell me about, like, I'm interested in, like in, in criminal cases, the client is not super involved in the preparation of the appeal, right? Like, you know, you, you know, you'll go talk to them, you'll you know, you'll get information about what happened in that way, but big strategic decisions aren't, you know, really, they're not really making calls about that. But I imagine in, in civil, you know, your client or your institutional client may be much more heavily involved in, in the framing of the appeal and, and, and the strategic choices. Right. So every case is different. Sometimes you have a client who maybe just an individual who's not a lawyer and who doesn't know much about the process and doesn't want to know. Uh, but on the other hand, sometimes you have a client or maybe not the actual client, but the, the face of the client to me will be 
another lawyer who has tried the case, is very familiar with the issues, may know the substantive law of the area better than I do, and uh, wants to have a significant amount of involvement in the appeal. So you have to tailor what you do in every case differently depending on the client's interest. Is it easier or harder when there's a lawyer as the client? (laughs) Generally speaking, it's going to be easier because lawyers understand for the most part, um, they have realistic expectations about what an appeal can deliver. I'll say that much at least. Mm -hmm. You know, individuals who aren't lawyers may kind of think that an appeal is their chance to try the case over again. And, you know, as most lawyers know, that's just not what an appeal is about. An appeal is about correcting an error that the lower court committed. Um, It's not a second chance or a do-over. Now, that being said, sometimes lawyers are not the easiest people to work with because, um, you know, if they think... uh, you know, to the extent that they want to exercise a lot of control over what happens in the appeal, sometimes that can be helpful and sometimes it can be um, difficult to deal with. If uh, the lower court lawyer may be kind of wedded to an issue that they thought was very important to the outcome of the case, but that I think, uh, based on my review of the law, that the court of appeals is not going to have much interest in or, um, you know, it's not the best issue for appellate review. Um, and then I think anytime you have more lawyers involved in a case, there, there's a possibility of a too many cooks spoiling the broth right. situation where, uh, particularly when it comes down to, to narrowing issues down, you know, as appellate lawyers, we always have to pick our best issues. And uh, when you have a case that's been handled by several different lawyers, you sometimes get this situation where nobody can agree on what the best issue is. So we're just going to argue all of them to the Court of Appeals, which uh, is never the best answer. What What's your threshold of like the number of issues that you feel comfortable raising? <laughs> you know, that's such a hard question. It, it's such an important question. There's, you have to think about it in every case. Right. You know, I think the most errors that I ever argued in a brief was six. Um, six is almost certainly too many. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as I was saying, sometimes you just can't narrow it down because you know, there's a negotiation sometimes between multiple people with an interest in the case and you you can't come to any other agreement. Um, You know, um, you know, on Twitter, this is one of my few attempts at a meme ever was. Yes. I want to hear about it. The galactic mind meme, you know? So if, and if you know this meme, it's like there's four different levels and the small brain going up to the galactic brain. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the small brain approach to the number of issues, I guess, is if you have 17 errors that were committed by the trial court, then you need to have 17 errors in your brief. And occasionally you'll actually see people do this in the court of appeals, which is it's an all, it's a terrible idea. Just because this court did 17 things wrong doesn't mean you should enumerate 17 errors. Um, but that's the small brain. Well, then the medium brain approach, which I've actually heard people advocate this too, is, well, let's just pick the absolute very best one or two issues because, um, you know, that makes the, the most, the shortest brief and the most focused brief and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, the problem with that, I think, is 
it's hard to really know what your best issue is sometimes. Mm-hmm. And uh, even though judges will tell you, I mean, I know, I remember Judge McFadden one time saying at an appellate practice CLE that you could basically tell how good someone's case on appeal is by how many errors they enumerate, you know, and one is the best, two is not quite as good. If it's three or more, you know, it's probably a loser. Um, but I, yeah, as much as judges like to say that, I don't know if it's really true because um, even though it's easier on judges, if you're only enumerating one error, I don't know if that's always in your client's best interest. So I think, and then the other point that I, that I made in my galactic mind meme is there's some psychological research about um, when people have more choices, sometimes the number of choices can actually uh, affect the way people decide uh, one of the issues, you know, and I'm I'm probably not expressing this very well, but. um, Well, kind of like, like a wine list at a restaurant, right? Like you never order the cheapest wine, you order the second cheapest wine. That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, (laughs) So that's, that kind of thought process sometimes I think goes into how many errors you pick is on the one hand, if you have five errors, then it looks like you don't know what um, you're just throwing everything you have against the wall and seeing what sticks. Right. If you have, if you're choosing between enumerating three and enumerating two, well, maybe that third error can actually, even if it's not a winner, maybe it somehow shines some light on the other part of the the case, and you know, kind of can. Uh, improve your chances somehow. So I, it's a, it's a it's a very complicated process deciding how many errors to enumerate. But then the galactic mind, the ultimate thing was just do whatever the trial lawyer wants. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's sometimes so I just say, you know, it's not worth fighting about ultimately sometimes. Uh if people want to have another error, fine, I'll I'll make the argument the best I can. I mean, I, I guess, I guess the best answer is, well, just pick the winning issues. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and then, and then you have no problem at all. That's right. Here's a story that'll keep you up at night is one of my first appeals. It was a retrial after a successful appeal. And the, the long story short is that the, it was a co-defendant murder case and one of the defense attorneys was giving a closing argument, and their defense was blaming the other co-defendant. And I guess that his closing argument was so impassioned that the two co-defendants just started getting into a fistfight wow. at the at counsel table. And so you know, they break for lunch, and a juror comes back and says, you know, I, having a, like a panic attack and saying, I, I just can't continue. I was so distressed by what I saw. I, I there's, you know, and the court dismisses her and then brings the alternative. And then later everyone comes back and the court says, hey, if you had seen, you know, juror number five, you would have agreed she was visibly distraught. Um, I was worried for her safety, medically, whatever, and no one objects. Mm -hmm. Well, they win that issue because it's a critical stage in the proceeding that the defendant wasn't there for, whether to um, dismiss a juror or not. And that issue was issue number 14 in the appeal. Right, right. And so I'm always like, you know, I'm all, that's all, I, I'm, I am now more of a subscriber to the, if I can have just one issue and I'm brave enough to do that, great. If not, maybe two or three, um, I, or maybe like two distinct issues, but issue number two is maybe ineffective or something with like two grounds in it or something. Um, so it's a little bit easier to digest. Right. But I'm always reminded of that 14th issue. Yeah, and you know, I stumbled across a case of while a book go where they enumerated like six errors, and they actually won on maybe four of them. You know, so it it does work sometimes. When you're doing appeals, tell me about your kind of general workflow. Okay, usually I get a phone call from either a trial lawyer or an individual who's either you know the client or a representative of the client. They have, most of the time, they have lost something in the trial court. Um, Occasionally, I get brought in to represent the appellee in a case, but 
most of my work is for appellants. And they want to know what to do next. Um, usually it's, it's shortly after whatever the order has been. So there is some time to figure it out. Um, the kind of the very first thing I have to figure out is, is this going to be a motion for new trial? Is this going to be an appeal? Mm -hmm. Is some other type of relief appropriate? And, you know, the first things I want to see are what is the order that you are looking to either appeal or somehow challenge? Uh, what is the motions that led up to that order if it was, you know, a grant of summary judgment or something like that? Um, the complaint, the answer in the case, the transcript, if there is one. Now, a big problem with a lot of my cases is they come to me before a transcript has been created, but the transcript is crucial to the decision about what to do. So, right. I mean, how do you handle it where, you know, because in, in criminal practice, it's almost easier because everyone files a motion for new trial. Right. And so it's always a leisurely approach to developing the case. But, but for you in a civil case, it may be, you know, someone calls up and says, hey, a week and a half ago, I lost a trial. I want to appeal. And then, you know, no transcripts exist. You have to rely on me to tell you what happened. And I guess counsel in the case, if I'm not counsel in the case. And, um, and you, you know, you have, you know, maybe, maybe 20 days to figure out, do I file a motion for new trial or a notice of appeal? Right. Um, you know, usually it, it works out. Okay. You know, usually, uh, by talking to the trial lawyer, I can figure out whether it's going to make sense to pursue a motion for a new trial or not. Um, and, um, it's never really been that much of a problem, I guess, but hmm, okay. you know, usually the trial lawyer is going to, in a civil case, is going to know whether it's worth pursuing a motion for, for a new trial or not. Um, but occasionally I'm trying to think, um, you know, I've filed motions for new trial in some pretty unusual circumstances where there wasn't really a trial. Um, but under Georgia procedure, you can do that pretty broadly. You know, right. the, a motion for new trial is the proper way to contest pretty much any resolution of a disputed issue of fact. So um, sometimes I've filed a motion for new trial in a situation where the trial lawyer didn't really think that it was even possible to do that. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I thought that taking everything into consideration, that was the best way to proceed. So, but uh, I've never really had a dilemma about whether I was, should wait for the sure. transcript or not. I, I assume that you're, you're paperless. <laughs> that, that's the idea, but looking around my <laughs> office right now, you know. I feel, I feel like paperless in a law office just means like you, you can see the top of your desk in places and most of it is on Dropbox. That's, that's like the definite, you know? Right. So everything I do is on computer. Everything that comes in gets put on computer, but um, as a practical matter, I mean, when I get a file from somebody, yeah, usually they can just send everything over on Dropbox, but there will also be a banker's box of documents. So, um, mm -hmm. You know, and when I when I go to court, you know, I, I go to court pretty often on motions for new trial or whatever um, might be coming up. So it, it's not just going to the court of appeals that I do. And mm -hmm. I like to have the paper with me. So it's it's far from an actual paperless practice. Uh, unfortunately, do you bring um, do you bring a computer or an iPad to court? I bring my laptop to court. Yeah, but I'd like to have the paper, too, for most. Thanks. Do you use your laptop during your court stuff? Oh yeah, yeah. The I, I I just had the courage to do this, and it's the most freeing feeling in the world. Is walking in with an iPad and zero paper, <laughs> and um, I mean, I mean, luckily, you, you know, on, on 
many criminal cases, it's not really, you don't really need a bunch of paper if it's about some limited issues. But um, yeah, try it sometime. It's incredibly free. Well, yeah, we'll see. I'm not super, <laughs> we own an iPad, but it's pretty much just for uh, recreation in our household. So I've, mm-hmm. I've never tried to use it for business. Mm-hmm. When, how much client contact do you have during the kind of early stages of the appeal? Like when do you think is the best time to, to, to really have a, um, a, a conversation with them about strategic choices? Um, well, again, it can be hard to do until you've really reviewed the record. Um, so in a case where you don't have the transcript yet, the clients will often want to have that conversation early on. And I feel like I'm constantly interrupting to say, well, I, I don't know the answer to that because I haven't seen the transcript. Mm-hmm. So. Personally, I kind of would prefer to have the the serious conversation about strategy a little later on. But as a practical matter, uh, the clients expect, and it's you know it's a reasonable expectation. They want to have a, an early conversation about how is this process going to play out. Yeah. And sometimes you just there's a lot of I don't knows because you don't know what you're going to find in the record and. You don't know. Um, there's a lot of contingencies, you know, depending on how the court may rule. If you do file some kind of a post-judgment motion, the whole appellate process will be contingent on the outcome of that. Do you do much outlining or or do you just kind of create it within the brief? So when I get to the brief... Um, My process, you know, I, I kind of go back and forth. Um, the, the first thing I will do is legal research on things that I think are going to be issues. And I will start, I have a template brief that I will go in, I'll put like some proposed subheadings that are going to match my enumerated errors. And then... I will stick in the legal research that I'm finding that supports or uh, doesn't support me on those particular errors. That's kind of my first, the first thing that goes on paper or, you know, on the computer screen is the legal research that I'm finding on the proposed enumerated errors. Um, and as you get deeper into it, some of those are going to pay off and some of them aren't, you know, you, you sometimes pretty early on, you can say, well, we were just wrong about that. The law does not support us on that thing that you thought was an error or yes, that was an error, but there's no way that it's going to be considered a harmful error here. So let's, let's uh, write that one off. Or you may find the law is, is actually better on some issue than you even realize. You know, sometimes um, the trial lawyer may have made an objection, but not really thought there was much of an issue on something. But then it turns out when you look at the case law that that's a likely winner for you. Right. Like surprisingly good law. On it. Right. Yeah. There, I mean, I, there's nothing. I'll, I'll go through and I'll make a list of maybe issues. And, you know, it'll be 25, 30 sometimes. And nothing feels worse than going down. And I'm like, nope, 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 <laughs> nope. Yeah. And get, getting nervous as you get to like five and you're like, oh, God. Right. Well, now, so what I'll do if I have a transcript, what I will do before I even start the legal research is read the transcript and make my notes. You know, and that all goes into a file that's that's not used in the preparation of the brief, really. It's just a separate file with my little notes, um, kind of page by page. Here's what was happening uh, so that I can find it later in the transcript if it, it turns out that I need it. And I will also kind of put bold around, you know, here's things that I think might be an error. Um, 
And certainly, you know, at some point in the process, you go through and make sure that all those bold things either were or were not uh, errors. And usually most of them turn out to not be worthwhile. I'll, you know, I will, and I'm going back and forth on, on this too, from on some, I'll do a, a kind of a summary like that where I'll just be, I'll be reading and kind of typing what's going on. And when I think there's an issue, I'll put three exclamation points mm-hmm. and then I can go back and just search for three exclamation points Yeah, and then just kind of go th- and then, you know, go through and be like, okay, here's where I thought issue. Here's where I thought. Um, I'm, I'm also in some recent appeals, I've gotten a little bit away from that really detailed note taking. If I know, okay, it, th- this case is not going to be about the facts. It's going to be about this legal issue or very narrow thing. And I'm not going to need as strong a command of the facts line by line as I otherwise would. Mm-hmm. And and organizing it on, um, on, I use an app called Liquid Text on iPad. And you can kind of pull stuff out of transcripts and organize it around. Um, and so I've started doing some of that. But then I get, I always get nervous that, well, what if I need to go back and right. figure out you know, you know, review every time someone talked about, you know, the the body or the, the gun or whatever, well, then it's going to take more time, you know, when I really don't have it on the back end right before oral argument. Yeah, I mean, in my experience, it's almost always worthwhile to have an actual uh, kind of an index almost of the transcript because you end up needing it. it. It's very rare that you can get through a case and just not, uh, not need to have that. Uh, and unfortunately, mm-hmm. it is pretty time consuming if you have a long trial. Um, but it can be even more time consuming to go back and have to search for something that you know is in there and not be able to find it. Like two days before oral argument, you know you should be doing all this other stuff, but like you seem to remember when that one witness said this one thing and yeah. Right. Yeah. Do you, when, when you're preparing for oral argument, do you moot your cases? I have done moots a few times. Uh, it's certainly helpful to do. Um, well, I mean, I say that <laughs> so <laughs> I've had the moot experiences where, the moot went off on a completely different direction as the actual oral argument. So mm-hmm. in that case, it really wasn't that helpful. But um, if you have the time and the people who can help you do it, um, it's it's wonderful to be able to do that. How, how else do you prepare for oral argument? Um, you know... I think like probably most people do, I have the short, pretty well-prepared statement so that'll carry me through for two or three minutes if there are no questions. And then beyond that, it's mostly thinking, what are the judge's questions going to be and what are my responses going to be? So um, I've never literally done flashcards, but that's kind of the the approach that I have is, you know, here's like the flashcard question and what is my flashcard answer to that question going to be? Right. Um, you know, my theory of oral argument is it's really all about your answers to the judge's questions. Um, if they, if instead of calling it oral argument, they just called it question and answer time. I think everybody would be better served. That's that's <laughs> right. Yeah. The, the most important thing you can do is uh, answer the judge's questions. And, you know, the other thing ab- about it, I get something about the cases that I get oral argument on. They tend to be ones where the record is a huge nightmare, you know? Um, so knowing the record um, is very important. I think, you know, I, I get the sense that maybe the reason that they ha- are, have granted the oral argument in the particular case is because the record is so bad that they, uh, they want to ask questions that can kind of filter through the record. Mm-hmm. So 
Um, and I, there's nothing fun about that, you know, just uh, tr trying to uh, uh, learn a big, messy record in a case. But it's it's the most important thing you can do, I think, for that kind of oral argument. I feel like that's like the getting your hands dirty appellate lawyer equivalent. You know, like walking into the coal mine in the morning for an appellate lawyer is when you have like a really messy procedural posture and a <laughs> bunch of orders, you know, just like some mess. And you're like, I need to figure out what this, you know, the lay of the land on this and it's not going to be easy. Right. Yeah. I had an opinion that came from the Court of Appeals just about two months ago where they actually used the phrase hot mess to describe <laughs> the record. Unfortunately, it's an unpublished opinion, but... It would have been the first use of hot mess ever in the Georgia reports. I would put that on my website. Congratulations <laughs> to you. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it truly was a hot mess of uh, the procedural history of the case was a hot mess. You know, um, that's a big part of the job, too, is trying to distill those difficult procedural situations for the appellate court. Um, I get a lot of those. I think people, uh, cases like that that have been going on for several years where there have been, there often will be multiple case numbers, you know, for, for whatever reason, multiple right. files were opened up, but they got consolidated at various points. And um, there have been orders that were vacated and then reinstated and you don't really know. Um, so you come into it four years later and it, it's just, it looks like a huge hot mess, but my job as the appellate lawyer is to kind of figure the, all that out and not make it look like a hot mess to the court of appeals. Like the answer to what happened in the case is like a seven minute long, you know, like, yeah. yeah. And, you know, and, and, and if the court considers, you know, this to be the law of the case when really it was consolidated at this point prior to this order, then you're like, oh, God. That's right. Sometimes there just is not a simple answer to that, unfortunately. And mm -hmm. you just have to do the best you can. What do you think there's a big difference between because I know you do some agency appeals where mm -hmm. you where you go through the the agency and then you end up in in the superior court. Um. Are those are those much different from the typical appeal in terms of how you approach them or or pitfalls or that kind of thing? Well, you know, I was telling you about the case where um, there were six enumerated errors and the court got reversed on four of them. You know, there's another case I found where it started out as some you know administrative decision. And went to a higher administrative level and then went to the Superior Court and then the Court of Appeals and then finally the Georgia Supreme Court. And I think it got reversed on just about every stage mm. of that. So that gives me some uh, hope, I guess, in, in those cases. It, it does. Uh, sometimes there's a, a situation where every court that looks at it has a different op opinion on something. And um, the agency cases are kind of like that. You know, you've already had. By the time you get to the Court of Appeals, you've had at least two sets of either judges or ALJs or you know whatever it might be who've uh, had their eyes on a particular case. Um, yeah, I don't know that it really changes the approach that much in the Court of Appeals, but. Um, you know, you may have a situation where you're arguing that the lower um, administrative agency decision was the correct one and the superior court was wrong. Um, but I, I don't know that it really changes your approach that much to the Court of Appeals because they're not really giving any um, deference to that. Well, I mean, depending on... Uh, Sometimes they will be giving deference to somebody, so you got to figure that out. Uh, but that's true in every case. In in your practice, what do you think have been the the things that you've changed 
that have had the greatest impact on your practice, either in terms of efficiency or lawyering or success or, or anything like that? Boy, that's a good question. Um, a, a big part has been changing the type of filtering the type of case that I want to take, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when I started out, it was kind of like anybody who was interested in talking to me, I wanted to talk to them. And I certainly didn't take every case, but, um, you know, I tried to help uh, anybody who I thought had any reasonable shot of being helped. And um, now I try to focus more on picking actual winners, you know, Mm. um, to filter out cases that are just not, um, even though it's a person who may be very deserving of help, uh, they just, uh, they they don't uh, have a strong likelihood of success. So that's been a big change as I, as I've evolved in my practice is rather than just fighting for people for the sake of fighting. I'm, I'm fighting because I actually think I can win. Um, as far as the actual process, um, you know, I, I, I certainly think I've streamlined the way that I, I'd look at a record in a case, I can get faster to the main issues, um, that kind of thing. Um, you know, not spending as much time, frankly, on cases, you know, when I, mm-hmm. when I started out, um, uh, I really wanted to chase every issue to the ends of the earth and, um, you know, most clients just can't afford that. And, uh, I can't afford to do it on my own time. So, um, I, I've, I try to be more efficient in picking the best issues as well as picking the best cases. You, know, I remember I had for like an embarrassingly long time, I had this romantic notion of, I'm going to read the trial transcript from beginning to end, just like the jury experienced it. Uh-huh. And it was so it was so inefficient, and it, an embarrassingly long time before I just admitted to myself, like, okay, I, I this is really dumb. I really need to like read the closing first, and then you know, like, actually figure out what's important before I start diving in. Right. Yeah. What do you have any? Um, do you have anything that you want to change? Hmm. Um. Well, a lot of what could I what I do could be more efficient, I think, if I had uh, other appellate lawyers who I worked with regularly. To be honest, um, you know, I'm yeah. I'm solo, and I love a lot of things about being solo. But at the same time, um, it, it could be a scheduling uh, nightmare when you have three briefs that are due within a few days of each other or something like that. Um, so, um, you know, I, I'd like to be able to, now that I'm more experienced doing this kind of thing, if I could kind of, uh, divvy up some of the duties and, um, you know, right now as a solo, I'm doing every bit of the, the work. So, um, there's some parts of that that really aren't efficient for me to do myself, but I just don't have any other way of doing it. I, I, I so often realize like, Oh, you know, this is why associates are useful. Yeah. And then, and then you go look and then you're like, Oh, they get paid this. That's why I don't have an associate. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe before too long, but not right now. Yeah. You know, all right. Well, you know what that sounds means. It means that it's time for the lightning round. Okay. Now, Andy, as you know, the, uh, the lightning round, I ask for your opinions on, on various issues in appellate practice, and you either give the right answer or the wrong answer, and at the end, you win something okay. if you're more right than wrong. And so the, uh, the first one, this is a, this is a controversial one, the, the parenthetical cleaned up. Uh-huh. For it or against it? 
I like it. I've never used it myself. I'm a little worried that it might strike some judges the wrong way. Um, but I, I'm, I think it's great, but I have never used it myself. So, you know, almost everyone, you're the first person who said, I like it. Almost everyone on the podcast, everyone on the other, on the podcast has said, no, they don't like it except for me. Um, and, and I kind of feel like, I mean, I like it, but I kind of feel like it's a thing for judges to use, you know? Uh, you know, I certainly, with everything I do, I try to be conservative. I'm not trying to break the mold on things. And I'm glad to see other people are using cleaned up. I, again, I think it'd be great if the blue book starts using that, but until it gets more widely used, I don't want to be the one pushing the frontier of what can be done. Yeah. All right. Here's, here's an, this is the softball question of the round. The Oxford comma. I think it's ordered. Absolutely for it. I think it's essential in any kind of legal writing. Lawyers should always use the Oxford comma because otherwise you have ambiguity. That that's also how I sort my friends, by the way. So <laughs> it's the first question I ask any, you know, if, if they're against the Oxford comma, they get defriended. I forget they exist. Um, <laughs> all right, next issue, font. Do you use any fun fonts or are you pretty close to, to uh, what they asked for. I use Century, uh, what is it, Century Schoolbook, I guess. Is that, that's the Supreme Court font? I believe it is the U.S. Supreme Court font, that's right. Yeah. Um, in, in pretty much all of my writing, unless it's prohibited somehow, that's what I use. Um, I used to use Times New Roman for the Georgia Court of Appeals because the rules were a little bit unclear, but, uh, I think at the beginning of last year they changed the rules, and now there's no problem using Century Schoolbook. So that's what I use. I have um, I have always used weird fonts with the Court of Appeals, uh-huh. um, and they've never kicked it back. But they have kicked it back when I didn't certify that it's you know I have to certify like oh that this is you know within the, the page yeah, limitations the yeah. you know and it's like. You know, a, a, a four-page filing motion for something. That's right. Like, you didn't certify that this, and I'm like, there's literally, you know, four dozen words in this filing. Do you really need me to? But yeah. All right. Next issue: hyperlinks to stuff in your in your briefs. Do you hyperlink the cases or to the record or anything like that? I've never done that. Um... You know, I think back when I was at Greenberg Troy, we had a filing in California where maybe that was done. Uh, it was some service that, that did it. Uh, you know, we didn't do it ourselves, but I've never tried to do that. I do put links in my briefs from time to time. I mean, I don't really think of them as hyperlinks because it's a PDF that's, uh, you know, when I'm actually filing, it's not a smart PDF, I don't think. But um, if somebody wanted to go in there and cut and paste it, they could. Um, but that's to things on the internet. So I'm trying to think when a, an example of that would be, um, I, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but occasionally yeah. you'll, you'll have a reason to, to put in a link, but it's not a, not truly a hyperlink. I don't think, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's a great thing to do. Again, if I were a judge, I would love to see attorneys doing that. Um, I think it might be a little bit advanced for the courts that I practice in right now. So I haven't, I haven't yeah. tried to push that frontier myself. But well, and I, I think like it's the kind of thing that I, I really like in theory, and but then I feel like it's something that I would spend time on that. It, you know, at least at, at this point in time in Georgia, I don't know if I'd get a lot of bang for my buck yeah. because I, I get the feeling that not a lot of judges are reading briefs electronically, certainly the minority. Right. I mean, uh, yeah, I think the numbers are going up. I think particularly the Georgia Court of Appeals is getting a lot younger. There's been a ton of turnover. Um, so there may be, um, you know, as the years go by, it's probably changing in that direction. But um Probably not quite there yet. Do you put um, screenshots, photos, that kind of stuff in your briefs? I have done that a few times when I thought it was particularly uh, persuasive. So 
uh, yeah, you know, I, I will do that. Would you, this is my new kind of, um, pet project where I really want to do it, but, um, it ha you know, maybe if I, if I get like the judge Dillard panel, so I know at least one judge will, will look at it. Um, it is, is formatting the brief for electronic consumption. And I, and this comes from, I saw on Twitter and, and appellate judge from some other state posted a screenshot of a brief and like the headings were in a different color. There's a bunch of white space. Like it was clear stuff was, I think the headings were let way left justified almost into the margin. Uh -huh. So it was easy to see where they broke up the text. Um, and, and you could tell it, it, it was formatted. So, you know, you're looking at it on, on an iPad or on the screen and it would really, right. really be easy to parse. You know, the other part of that that I've heard of is the footnotes on the right. Mm. Uh, you can put the, your footnotes in the right margin and that way it's even easier to use footnote citation. Um, yeah, you're right. If you got the right panel, um, I, I would consider doing that. Um, you know, uh, Judge Dillard, I know, has said specifically that he would be fine with that. And I, I'm pretty confident there are a few other judges on the Court of Appeals, at least, that would be happy with that. Um, you know, it has to work with their whole system, though. Yeah. Uh, so whether you could do a regular brief and then also file a companion and say, look, here's also my uh, – it's a supplemental brief. It's the exact same text as my regular e-filed brief, but this one is for electronic consumption. I'm not sure exactly how you would handle the filing. Yeah. Of it. Yeah. I mean, that, I think that's a great answer to, um, to the issue where you don't want it to look like trash if they print it out, but then you also want to make it convenient for them on the screen. Right. Um, no. Next issue. Do you always ask for oral argument? No. Um, so, you know, I, I, I generally lean towards being in favor of oral argument as the appellant. I think the more time the court spends thinking about your case as the appellant, the more likely you are, all else being equal, uh, to win. Now, that being said, you know, some caveats to seeking oral argument. One is that as the appellant, you get the last word when you file a reply brief. Um, so if you have an oral argument, though, you lose that effectively because whatever's in your reply brief, the other side can respond to it oral argument. Um, another caveat sometimes to seeking oral argument is that um, if you have a real wild card on the other side of the case, like by which I mean an attorney who might bring up something totally unexpected at oral argument. Um, in that situation, I have occasionally avoided asking for oral argument just because um, you don't want to spend oral argument trying to clean up somebody else's mess, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like it just could be a distraction or a, a, a sideshow, you know? And then I guess the, another situation is just where the client doesn't want to spend the money. You know, that's, that's a consideration for some clients. Um, so I don't, uh, sometimes the client just kind of, uh, wants to keep it simple and huh. save a little bit of money by not having an oral argument. You know, I, I guess I hadn't even thought about that because in, in criminal, it's, it's common, I think, to, to flat fee the appeal process. Uh -huh. do, do you flat fee or do you bill by the hour? I usually bill by the hour. I mean, usually I, I almost always feel by the hour. Um, mm -hmm. So occasionally I've done contingency arrangements, mm -hmm. but uh, usually I feel by the hour. I, I've done the flat fee thing as well, but mostly hourly billing. And yeah, that's really interesting. I guess because that really does add a, I mean, then you really do need to weigh as the client, what benefit am I going to get from oral argument? And it may just be marginal versus, you know, some cost, um, 
you know, I guess not gigantic in comparison to the rest of it, but still somewhat significant in preparing for oral, oral argument and going to do it. And then maybe if you have to file a supplemental brief from something that happened at oral argument. Right. Yeah, I guess that could really be, um, you know, a difficult decision to make and I guess to advise about. Right. Now, that being said, you know, I don't know how many clients or potential clients might be listening to this, but I could probably find few, an arrangement. Very, from would, the listening number, very few. Very few. You don't have to worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so what I was going to say is, um, you know, I, I would like to do more, more oral arguments. So to the extent that a, a client wanted to uh, save some money on their the rate for oral argument, I could probably uh, give you a discount. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I guess particularly if like, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I guess all lawyers do that. I know I do this. If it's if it's something that I really want to do, I'll find a way to make it work on the price. Right. You know. And if it's if it's the kind of, if it's an appeal where I'm like, oh, this has a really good shot of me winning. Um, I I will be more flexible on price than if it's something you know standard, you know, just kind of standard issues. Yeah. Do you in your in your briefs do you use tables of contents and tables of authorities and that kind of thing? Yeah, I almost always do. Um, you know, the Eleventh Circuit they're actually required. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're very helpful and they're not really that hard to do. Um, now, occasionally, if it's something very short, I will leave it out. But um, you know, if you use Microsoft Word, which I do, uh, the table of authorities creation situation, uh, you know, the little built-in table of authorities creation thing works pretty well. It doesn't take that long to do. And then the table of contents is even easier than that. So um, I think they're both very helpful to have. They give your brief a little bit of a more professional look too. And they're just not that hard. So I'm surprised that so many uh, appellate practitioners or people on the other side of me in appellate cases don't include those. Yeah, um, because they're really not that difficult. You know, I'm I'm sold on the table of contents um, as being a persuasive tool. Uh huh. But I'm I'm not convinced about the table of authorities. So. A couple situations where table of authorities matters. I mean, again, you see this in the 11th Circuit because people have to do them. Um, you can uh, – well, first of all, if you have a text searchable PDF, which you should have, but people do not always actually have in the Georgia Court of Appeals anyway, um, then you can actually find stuff pretty easily, so it d- doesn't really matter. But um, you can see. Uh, like when you're doing the response or the reply, you can see that the response either has or has not cited the key cases from the other side's mm. brief. Um, you know, I had a case, you know, I just filed the reply in this case in the 11th circuit. And it was like, you could see in their response brief, you could see from the table of authorities, they hadn't cited hardly any of the cases that we filed or that we cited in our opening brief. So, um, you know, I, th- I think I even referred to that in the text of the reply. It was like, look at their table of authorities and see if there's nothing in there from to respond to the main cases that we cited. Right. Now, that being said, is it the table of authorities, is it that persuasive? Probably not. But, um, you know, it, I think it is a little bit helpful to some readers and it's really not that hard to do. Do you use do you use styles in Word? I mean, I've seen a lot about how you can use styles yeah. to kind of pre-format stuff, and I never do. But I'm I'm feeling like I should probably just bite the bullet and really learn how to use Word. Yeah. So back when I was at Greenberg Charg, I guess I learned how to use styles pretty well, and I've continued to use them today. Um, for re- legal writing, all that I really use them for are body paragraph. Uh, block quotations, and then headings. Uh, it makes doing the table of contents a snap. Um, you know, you just press a button and basically it, the table of contents is created from your headings. 
And um, it also just kind of solves some problems that you have setting up block quotations and setting up, you know, when you cut and paste text, sometimes it messes up and things like that. So I find that the styles are somewhat helpful to have a body paragraph style and a block quotation style mm -hmm. so that I can instantly make a block quote. Now, <laughs> whether to use block quotes or not at all is like, I guess another appellate uh, question might be later in your it, it actually around. it actually is sometimes i skip it and sometimes i don't but <laughs> it, it actually is in there i mean what do you feel about block quotes so i mean i know that a lot of judges will say that block quotes are bad i guess i use them probably more than the average lawyer i don't know um there's some things that just have to be block quoted i think if you have a long quote from a statute or from the key deposition testimony or from the contract that is at issue. Mm -hmm. I feel like you just, it's silly to break it up into three different quotes just for the purpose of avoiding a block quotation. Um, and the same thing, if again, if there's a case that says exactly what I want to say and that um, is a long quotation it feels kind of silly to me to break it up just for the sake of not having a block quotation. So now again, I'm not saying uh, on the average brief, I probably have one or two block quotations. It's not like the thing is full of block quotes, but um, I I'm not allergic to block quotes the way some writers are. Yeah. I feel like I early on, I relied on them too much in quoting the law and then, uh -huh. and then I really just excised them completely, and now I'm kind of coming back to like I I agree with you where I really like to block quote stuff from the record, you know, like mm -hmm. like the section of the trial that I'm complaining about, or you know, yeah, from the depot or whatever, because I feel I I like showing the language and context, and then I'm not hiding anything, right? And and then every once in a while I'll block quote stuff from cases, but I've, I've kind of moved more away from that. But, but yeah, I, I don't think that they're a, you know, a pox on briefs, like some, some writers thing. Right. Well, I have good news for you. Andy, you have passed the lightning round. All right. Congratulations. Uh, and what do I win? You know, your prize this week is, you know, you're going to get an oral argument that someone's going to pay full freight for. <laughs> and that's really, I mean, that's worth its weight in gold. Um, so congratulations on that. I'm very happy for you. Um, okay, so the, the, the last question of the whole thing that, um, that we ask is, what, is, what is the last bold choice that you made or a bold choice that you want to make in, in the near future or future? And it can be in your practice. It can be in your in your writing, um, whatever. Huh. Um, let me think about that one. The last bold choice that I made. My, my answer the, the last time was um, actually, actually kind of seriously thinking about filing a brief for electronic consumption. And maybe, maybe at the trial level. Because then, mm -hmm. you know, maybe it makes more sense if I know the trial judge is using an iPad. I, I don't have, you know, I don't run into the appellate problem. But that was the bold choice that I wanted to make. And I've not yet made it, but it's still on my mind. Yeah. Um, you know, um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm not sure if bold is the word for it, but I'm representing a client right now in a OCGA 91160 um, motion to set aside a judgment on the grounds of fraud. Um, I feel like I have clients who approach me about that kind of thing pretty often, more often than um, far more often than you can reasonably actually file them. Sure. But, um, you know, uh, I take it very seriously whenever I pursue a case like that. I wouldn't do it 
if I didn't feel like I could could really back it up, um, which is uh, again, it's no guarantee I'm going to win it, but um, taking on those uh, motions to set aside on the grounds of fraud. Um, so uh, again, I, I, I'm not sure if it was bold or foolhardy <laughs> or what, but well, we, um, we have to wait for the opinion and then we'll know. That's right. <laughs> well, um, Andy, thank you so much for, uh, for joining me, uh, on the pod. I, I had a really good time chatting with you. Um, how, if, if people want to connect with you on, on social or, um, talk to you, how do they do that? Sure. So uh, you can go to my website, andyclarklaw.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Andy Clark Law. Um, I think if you just Google Georgia Appeal Lawyer, I'm usually on the first page, so you can find me that way. Um, and I, I'd love to hear from anybody who wants to just chat about appeals or legal writing or anything else. Well, great. Well, as always, thank you for listening to the podcast. Um, if you enjoyed it, please rate us five stars. If you didn't enjoy it, you really listened to a lot of it to come to that realization. Uh, as always, thank you, and uh, we'll see you uh, next time. <laughs>